When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. You're tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 64. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience. Located in northern Minnesota, you haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. And by Dogtra Callers, for over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. I just have my hands on a new Dogtra product 
Can't talk about it quite yet, but I'm excited to share with you my experience with it, and I'm excited to put it to use in the field this fall. You will hear more about that soon. Or now, to learn more about Dogtra collars, go to dogtra.com. And buy Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food out in the field. How you and your dog have prepared determines how you'll perform. Balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog. Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. When that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. Find out more about it at yukonuba.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you'll never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. And when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordy and Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about Gordy and Sons Outfitters at GordyandSons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, framed steel door, everything you need. For a safe, successful hunting trip for you and your bird dog, go to dakota283.com and use the promo code PU10. That's PU10. That'll get you 10% off a kennel from Dakota283 at dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Jacob W. from Pennsylvania. Jacob suggested one of our recent guests, and for that, we thank him. He's got a Project Upland t-shirt on the way. You could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do, make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave the show a rating in your podcast app. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast post. Send us some feedback, guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Another reminder for the films of the Feathered event, June 14th, Lander, Wyoming, brought to you by the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. Go to wyomingwildlife.org and look up films of the Feathered. If you can make it, I'll see you there. All right, here we go. Today's guest, Ron Kendall Jr. of Quail Safe. Ron is originally from South Carolina. He is now a Texas man. He has a passion for conservation and especially for the bobwhite quail. Ron's father, Ron Kendall Sr., is a wildlife toxicology professor at Texas Tech University. He's been studying and researching a threat to the bobwhite quail that many of you may have heard about. If you haven't, you're going to learn more about it today. Ron Kendall Jr. joins us to bring us up to speed what we know, what we don't know, what he and other people and organizations are doing to save the bobwhite quail in Texas and beyond. Let's jump into today's show and welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Ron Kendall. Ron, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you this afternoon, man? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you for asking, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. I want to jump right into it, Ron. Let us know where we're talking to you from. Put us on the map. Where you at? All right. So I am. I'm out in Texas. I'm in Lubbock, Texas. That's uh, where I I reside here between Lubbock and Claremont, Texas. So all through the Rolling Plains is is where I'm at, and I'm, I'm sitting here in, in Lubbock, Texas, home of the Red Raiders today. How do you, how do you spell Lubbock? i got to put this into maps. i got to get a visual. 
It is L-U-B-B-O-C-K. All right, got it. I always like to have Google Maps up next to me here so I can so I can get a visual. So definitely West Texas. Man, I don't think the Project Upland podcast has been to West Texas since we interviewed uh, Ryan O'Shaughnessy from West Texas Quail Outfitters. Do you know him? No, but I, I have heard of him. I have heard of him. We're, we're kind of out here in, in no man's land in Lubbock. Well, I know this from from chatting with you a little bit, but uh, and we're going to get definitely get into a little bit of your story today before we kind of transition to the topic at hand. So I do know that you are not originally from Lubbock, Texas. So maybe give us a little background on how you and your family wound up there. Yeah. So I have been in Texas now for about 20 years. So I'm... I'm uh, I'm almost a fully converted Texan, but <laughs> I was born in in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, my father is from South Carolina. He uh, he grew up and, um, and and lived in South Carolina for most of his life. And when I was born, my father was working at Clemson University and. Uh, ended up getting recruited to Texas Tech University to found the Institute of Environmental and Human Health. So uh, when I was about five, we came out to Lubbock, Texas, which for my dad, uh, he thought he hit the jackpot because he had always heard of the excellent wild quail hunting in West Texas. So for him, Lubbock was thrilling. For my mother, uh was she was a little concerned with where she was where she was headed, and <laughs> I, I didn't have much idea. I was along for the ride. <laughs> so your dad, now let's let's go straight into you, your dad was a quail hunter, and I'm assuming that was your intro to quail hunting. Your dad was a quail hunter before he moved to Texas, but uh, obviously that became a big part of your life after moving to Texas. Is that where, that's where you got your first taste of upland hunting would be in Texas then, right? Well, I, I, I actually, uh, I started out, my father got me into the field really as soon as I could walk. Sure. So I was hunting on plantations uh, and some properties in South Carolina. Really when I was about three years old, my, my mom and I would, would join my dad <laughs> as, as often as we could. So there's videos of me, you know, holding, holding quail and watching my dad and, and the dogs work uh, out in South Carolina. But I guess I really started getting into it a lot more was here in Texas. That was my first actual quail hunt. Uh, when I was, you know, when I was five years old, I couldn't really keep up with my dad. So he got a little uh, electric cart buggy from from walmart so i would drive that around um <laughs> all around the rolling plains chasing my dad chasing quail so and then you know started hunting as as soon as i could uh get a gun in my hand started with a bb gun but uh graduated soon soon after that yeah you and me both well your dad definitely got <laughs> you going he got you going down the right path that's for sure and I, i'm really starting to like your dad more and more by the second i like i told you before we uh jumped on this call i i just got done watching the bob white film again and we'll talk about that but your dad uh, he seems like a character he's uh, he's clearly very passionate about when he's talking about quail hunting and quail research and he just seems like a generally a all-around good guy but i'm obviously not telling you anything you don't know already 
Yeah, he is undoubtedly extremely passionate about quail hunting. Uh, probably, probably almost to a fault. He loves he loves wild quail hunting. So uh, this uh, him getting to study quail has been a, a very fulfilling duty for him. So again, we're not just talking about your dad for no reason. He's going to be a part of this conversation probably throughout, but we will kind of explain the dynamic a little bit. But I wonder if I wonder if we should set the stage a little bit, even if that involves kind of going back to South Carolina and talking about the history of wild bobwhite quail and sort of how you know, it's not what it once was, especially in South Carolina, whereas Texas is, you know, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhat considered the last frontier for wild bobwhite quail hunting. And then we'll, we'll kind of transition into the challenges and, and what we're talking about today. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, my, my knowledge, I, I, I spent some time on the East coast and I'm, I've got some relationships throughout the Southeast, but a lot of my knowledge comes from my dad's past, he grew up in South Carolina, being able to walk out his back door and you know, had, had a little Llewellyn setter, uh, was able to go get into quail right away in the woods. Uh, that is a hard thing to find nowadays in South Carolina throughout much of the Southeast is, is being able to, to hunt wild birds. Um, some of the, I was, I was talking uh, last week to a, a landowner in South Carolina and you know, they're, they're able to, you know, they, they have a few wild birds. They, they know the covey and, and where they live. And, you know, it's, it's, it's few and far between to find properties that are holding wild quail and sustaining wild quail. So things have changed significantly from um, the 60s, 70s to where they are today through much of the Southeast. And a lot of historically great quail hunting regions in, in Texas have have lost a lot of birds and we're starting to have some years where for we're experiencing very low quail numbers here in the rolling plains of, of west texas which is the you know kind of kind of a lot of people call it the alamo of of wild quail it's it's one of the, the last places you can go and 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 hunt all wild birds right and i had i actually did have a couple of guys on from the south carolina bobwhite initiative and we did talk about sort of the history of quail, especially in the Southeast a little bit, talk about, you know, I think our conversation centered quite a bit on habitat, which I think is always a focal point when you're talking about upland birds. But you guys, along with uh, everybody else down there, have, have learned a thing or two about quail in the last decade or so that sort of eye-opening, I guess, and I mean no pun there, but uh, tell me about 2010 because you and I talked about that year and how that was sort of the culmination of a few of these things that kind of lend itself to our conversation today. Yeah, so 2010 for me was... Uh, particularly eye-opening and for everyone throughout the region. For me, it was my first year I was going to be able to have my driver's license and go quail hunting on my own. Um, and everyone was really excited in 2010. We had you know, 2009 through the winter and coming in 2010, we had pretty good quail numbers and we were, we were set up for success. We had good breeding stock and uh, everyone thought, you know, 2010 was going to be a, a, a boomer year. Uh, everyone was everyone was gearing up, 
uh, ready ready to get in the field. We had perfect. You know, we had all the rainfall we needed right when we needed it. Uh, we didn't have any crazy storms, which is to be expected in West Texas. Um, and, and we were set up for success. And basically everyone hit hit the field that fall and the quail were gone. And uh, properties with great habitat, properties, you know, with good habitat, you know, everywhere in between. Uh, there, there was just the birds had almost disappeared. It was it was very hard to find any quail. And that was that was a year that really made people start to think, okay, what is causing these dramatic fluctuations in quail numbers? And, you know, what can we do to try to begin to understand this this phenomenon? And, uh, you know, what what could we do down the road to fix it? So definitely there were there were fluctuations and and bird numbers had been declining prior to that but that was sort of the perfect storm that sort of raised the alarm if you will and what even prior to 2010 what were the speculations at the time what were the things that people said you know sitting on the tailgate when they went out and had a tough day because i you know i think we all kind of do that what were some of the things that people were speculating about and thinking that was potentially causing these population fluctuations oh there there's you know, there, there's all sorts of um, different ideas floating around. One big one was fire ants, which does impact quail when they're when they're in the egg um, and, and chicks. But uh, pe- you know, people really were talking about fire ants. People were talking about starting to talk about wild pigs then and pigs' impacts on on nesting quail. And then you know, major thing was habitat. And then, as always, the the impact of of the weather, you know, what, what rain, you right. know, when we got the rain, what, you know, what happened, you know, what did, did we get some you know, too much rain or, uh, and then, you know, as, as always just predators and do we have some increase in predation or hawks, things like that. So some of those things are, they're almost constants. You hear them in the same conversation about other upland birds as well. And I think, you know, a lot of them are visible in, in the weather is always unpredictable and, and habitat is always critical, but not necessarily aside from those things, but in conjunction with those things, there were some new threats to quail discovered. Now, had they been previously discovered or did that come after 2010? So to dig into it here, you know, what, where we're at now, what we think played a significant role in the reduction of quail numbers that year was parasites. And till 2010, uh, there had been people had recorded. I know one wildlife biologist had had recorded in the 70s that there were parasites, and he had recorded eyeworms uh, and wild quail, which you know it was recorded, but no one ever followed up on that observation. No one ever said, you know, what what is that doing? What what could be the impact of of a parasite like that on on the quail? Okay. So now, obviously, we're paying attention to the eye worm, and there's another one too, right? Is it the cecal worm? The eye worm and the cecal worm are the main focus of what we're going to talk about today and the main focus of uh, the Wildlife Toxicology Lab, which is my father, Dr. Ron Kendall's lab at Texas Tech University. So those two parasites, the eye worm and the cecal worm, have been determined to to be uh, significantly detrimental to wild quail. 
Okay. So just to kind of continue to add a little bit of foundation to the conversation, what have we learned since we've really put the, the eye worm and the seek worm under a microscope again, no pun intended, but I guess, I guess I keep, <laughs> I keep doing that. But, uh, what have we learned about them? How do they, how do they infiltrate the quail? How do they harm the quail? How do they kill the quail? What kind of a threat is this Ron? Okay. So I'll try to break it down as best as I can. So you know, a brief glimpse into the life cycle of uh, these parasites. We'll talk about the eye worm to start with. Okay. Um, the eye worm can, it's a, a very incredible specimen. It's life cycle. It can, it can lay dormant throughout the winter and it's transmitted through intermediate hosts, uh, in the spring is in spring into the summer is when the main spread of these sure. parasitic infections occur. And the intermediate host would be anthropods like crickets and grasshoppers. Um, so the cricket would carry the larva, which the cricket would then be ingested by a wild quail. And that would immediately, within half an hour, that larva would be activated and it would begin to travel up the esophagus of, of the bird. Uh, it, it would travel through the lacrimal duct into the back of the eye and that eye worm um, actually has a mouth on it and a lacerating tip. So it essentially suctions on to the back of the eyeball and lacerates and feeds on blood. And then that worm becomes sexually mature in a few weeks. It's able to lay eggs. Those are then uh, passed through the digestive tract into the fecal matter. And the cycle continues when the cricket or grasshopper eats or comes in contact with that and with a quail being a very communal bird, these parasitic infections can occur very rapidly and very widespread through a certain zone. Right. That was actually something that I picked up on from the Bob White film, the video. There's a, there's a, a part of it where your dad actually, he's like exclaiming that he found a, a roosting, a quail roosting site about as big as big as a baseball cap is what he said. And said that was a pretty good pretty good size covey, right? That kind of gives you an idea of how these birds are obviously in close contact and a parasite like this could, like you said, rapidly expand and be detrimental. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so you've explained to us how the eye worm takes hold in the bobwhite quail. What is the end result? Will the eye worm eventually kill the quail? Basically, we're compiling factors here when we're talking about parasitic infect infection. So the parasites alone, and I'll you know we'll talk about eye worms and seagull worms. They could eventually deprive a wild bird of so much nutrients that it would eventually die. That that has uh, that that has been proven that that it can kill a quail. We. I would hypothesize, you know, my, myself that that probably doesn't occur very often in the wild because when we look at a, a wild bird, a wild quail, it's constantly avoiding predation. So when we think about a quail's day to day, it's got to be at the top of its game every second of the day to survive. So when we have an eye worm lacerating into the back of the eye, we've, we've seen up to a hundred, you know, over a hundred and one bird. Wow. Um, it's causing uh, edema, swelling, 
vision reduction, uh, almost blindness in some cases. Uh, it's sucking blood. It's sucking nutrients. So the quail can't see. So we've, we've observed over the years more and more cases of quail flying into the broad side of a barn or flying in front of a vehicle, uh, flying into a fence. I've watched them fly straight into a tree. You know, a, a quail doesn't, a quail doesn't do that when it's healthy. It's a, it's a pretty agile bird. So you take away its eyesight, you start taking away its energy. It's going to have a, a lot more trouble surviving in the wild. Right. I follow you. The quail is much more susceptible to predation because this parasite is affecting its ability, probably not will, but definitely its ability to survive. Yes. Yes. And with the sequel worm, uh, just a little bit about the sequel worm. Yeah, let's hear about that as well. Two different parasites here. Real quick, the eye worm, they have actually sequenced the DNA of it. It's 99% related to the Loa Loa human eye worm uh, in northern and central Africa, and it's uh, that that eye worm is actually they've they've studied it in a lab setting with a uh, with humans that have contracted that parasite, and it's caused near blindness uh, and severe headaches and swelling uh, in in a human, and 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 the eye worm we're finding in the quail is 99% related. So that's just that's something else to demonstrate how much it could impact the quail's day-to-day life. And then the sequel worm is, I would compare it, it's, it's comparative to the roundworm in a dog. So it's in the digestive tract, it's in the cecum, which is where the quail uh, is processing the nutrients uh, out of its diet. The, the Wildlife Toxicology Lab has found, uh, I think, around 1,300 in one cecum. And you've got to think about how small a quail is. It's found... right. 1300 in one cecum which is every single worm there is sucking nutrients it's it's feeding but it's also blocking passage so it's very disruptive we've seen birds emaciated to the point where they can hardly walk and you could pick them up by hand i mean i'm talking about a wild bird that's so run down that you can just go pick it up so the sequel the sequel worm would be you know, would be sucking the nutrients. And then the eye worm is just, is sucking nutrients, but it's just incredibly uncomfortable and reducing vision. So, you know, when you add this up and then you add up increased predation, whether we talk about uh, a hawk, raptors in the sky, we talk about bobcats, things like that. We start adding all these factors up. We start adding up the habitat part of the equation. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a lot of things stacked against a wild quail when they're parasitized right they're on the bottom of the food chain and they need every advantage they can get so if you start taking away some of their natural ability to survive it's it's easy to connect the dots and see where they're going to be in trouble ron do we know is there any mystery to the origin of these two parasites because where i'm going with this is oftentimes when we hear about sort of a new recent or modern threat to a species, a lot of times it's something like a an invasive species, something exotic, something that hasn't always been there. Because I mean, bobwhite quail, they're native species. They've been here surviving for a long time. Is it something on the landscape? Are the conditions better now than they were for these parasites? Do we know that? Is there is there still a lot of mystery there? Yeah, anything I could say about that would be would be speculative. Okay, I you know uh, either. There could be two ways to look at it. Either we introduced that 
at some point, you know, with the globalization of, of the planet and, you know, maybe we introduced that and it's slowly but surely taking hold or conditions have changed and it's more favorable uh, for these parasites to become more specialized and, and more effective at what they're doing and, and spreading. So anything like that would be speculative. One day, you know, I hope we could we could dig into that more. But uh, for now, it's there, there's no telling. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just I was really curious about that. You know, really because we've got sort of this. You know, I won't even try to compare it, but you know, interesting parallel in that there's a threat a known threat to rough grouse right now being West Nile virus. And that is something where, you know, we know West Nile virus was not always here. It's, it was introduced and now we're slowly, but surely learning about the effects it has across different habitats. So interesting, but we can't say that same thing for, for these two parasites with quail, which is really neither here nor there, because at the end of the day, what we care about is, are the quail and uh, clearly they're being affected by it. And they don't really care where it came from, do they? <laughs> no, no, they, they don't. So it's uh, looking at, at the cyclical nature of, of quail, quail populations in the rolling plains. It, it seems to be, it's getting harsher and harsher where we have these dramatic, dramatic die offs. We can't speak where it came from, but it's, it's definitely playing its role right now. Can you attempt to put into perspective the fluctuation of quail numbers from a hunting perspective? Meaning, you know, even if it's as simple as, well, yeah, my best year ever, we would go out and flush X amount of coveys. And then in 2010, we flushed one or zero coveys. I mean, can you just kind of attempt to put that into perspective? Yeah. I mean, it's dramatic as, I mean, in, in 2010, we were flushing you know, less than a handful of coveys. Maybe if that, you know, you might have an afternoon finding no birds. Okay. Um, and, and the year before, you know, on a good year, kind of right where we're at, you could, you could push, I've seen, you know, 35 covey days easy Wow. with, you know, 15, you know, 15 birds a covey. So it's very dramatic. Yes, definitely. So, and that's, that's where I was going with it just because the numbers are, you know, unfamiliar to me. I haven't hunted quail down there. And so I wouldn't really know, but to hear those kind of numbers, I mean, it definitely paints a dramatic fluctuation and that's, uh, that's what I was trying to square away. All right. Wildlife toxicology lab. Is that a thing prior to 2010 or does that come about after 2010? Oh, my father was, and I'm not sure the exact date. It was after 2010, but he was already in the process of, of setting up that lab to start doing his uh, his own research again. He had been running, he had been operating the Institute of Environmental and Human Health at Texas Tech for a long time. He was director and um, wanted to transition into doing more science again. And so it was kind of the uh, perfect, perfect storm for him in that transition. And then you know, that occurred in, in 2010. And People started talking, saying, "Okay, we need to, we need this, you know, we need to figure out, we need to look into all sorts of issues. We need to see, you know, what happened here." And that's when organizations like Park City's Quail Coalition is a foundation in Texas who has been a, a large donor to the Wildlife Toxicology Lab and the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, um, Texas A&M, AgriLife. Texas Tech University. It was a huge collaborative effort 
uh, with universities throughout the state um, to come together with knowledge and funding to say, let's look into all these issues. And I guess the smoking gun um, was the parasite problem, the parasite hypothesis. And, and that was my father's uh, strong suit with his, with his background. What does the landscape look like from the perspective of, is there debate over the significance of these parasites or is it generally speaking kind of everybody is of the opinion that these are having the biggest impact so we've um i've been a big champion of the parasite hypothesis and the parasite solution uh, because i've i've seen the results the unbelievable results that we've been able to achieve but we have had from from most of the community, um, and, you know, over the years, it's uh, people have started to change their mind, but uh, it's still a lot of pushback from the community to, to say the parasites have been here and the parasites don't affect quail. But when you really look at the science behind uh, what's going on here, and then you look at bird numbers today, and uh, and and you actually see what's going on. Um, I think it's going to be a a process to convert people to say, you know, there's there's another piece of the puzzle that we didn't understand before, but we're beginning to understand it now. And this is only the tip of the iceberg as far as our understanding of what's going on and how we're going to provide a solution and develop a, a model to fix this issue. But as we expand the scope of of study with the feeders and the medicated feed. I think more and more people will will, will get on board and, and say, this makes sense. And uh, it's really going to take people wanting to educate themselves. And that's why I'm so thrilled to have this opportunity to chat with you today, Nick, is just I'm trying to spread the word that there's there's hope for a solution to you know another piece of the puzzle that we didn't previously realize. There's a solution to this issue. We're still learning, but you know we need everyone's support. Everyone needs to kind of to work together to save this iconic species. Got it. We paused this episode of the podcast for just a moment to let you know that today's show is also brought to you by Trinity Kennels, home of the Apanuel Breton. Trinity Kennels French Brittany Spaniels are from champion bloodlines, field tested and family approved for over 30 years. Coming from the most prestigious and elite French bloodlines, as well as American champions, Trinity Kennels is committed to producing premier Epanuel Bertones for the field trialer and foot hunter alike. We now return to the Project Upland podcast. So there is not 100% universal consensus on anything, which I don't think neither you nor myself expects really. That's, that is to be expected that we don't have consensus. But you did mention yeah. results and medicated feed. And that's obviously a, a big part of our conversation, why you're here to talk about it. So let's, without, you know, jumping too far ahead, let's go from, you know, 2010 to we learn about the parasites. You've done a good job, I think, explaining to us kind of the threat. Now let's talk about possible breakthroughs and what we've learned in treatment and getting results to possibly helping these birds. Yeah. So when this whole project began... And I guess I, I, I'll differentiate here. 
right now. You know, my my uh, statements and my opinions do not reflect um, my father or the Wildlife Toxicology Lab at Texas Tech University. Sure. Um, I'm, you know, I, I I developed the quail safe, which is a quail feeder, and I'll explain more about what that does. But I'm just kind of given. Uh, I've I've been here throughout the process, and I've um, I've I've engaged a lot of my lo- my life here. Um, devoting time in the field and 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 critical thinking into how to create a solution for this this problem. But right. when we you know when when the uh, when the science began, uh, first off we said okay okay we got parasites in quail. So the wildlife toxicology lab said are these parasites impacting quail? It was pretty clear early on that this was playing a major factor that we hadn't previously realized. And the Wildlife Toxicology Lab was then commissioned by multiple organizations. Um, two of two of the the, um, the big sponsors were were Park City's Quail Coalition and the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. They they played a major role in the development of the medicated feed, but they came on board and said, this is a problem. We need a solution. And uh, the Wildlife Toxicology Lab, my father said, we could develop a medicated feed for quail, and we just got to develop a process around it, and we think this would work. And they went for it. So where we're at today is the medicated feed is called Quail Guard, and it is the first ever medicated feed for uh, wild quail. Um, it's going through the, uh, motions with FDA right now. It's, um, still in the approval process. And so the wildlife toxicology lab has been working under strict guidelines from the food and drug administration, um, under GLP protocol, which is good laboratory practice, uh, very high level science and, um, lots of accountability here as far as, you know, the science that's going on. And, and how that's conducted. And the, the FDA is, is treating this like a human drug because the wild quail is consumed um, by us you know, avid outdoorsmen. Sure. It's a, it's, that's the best part, you know, is, is to, to harvest quail and be able to take it home and, and cook it. So they're, they're having to prove that this is safe for human consumption, which is taken uh, multiple years, but they're in the, the final stages with FDA right now. FDA is encouraged with the findings. They are, they're excited about it as well. This is, this is an exciting project project and they understand the urgency of this um, situation with the dramatic fluctuations that we're observing even this year, even right now with, with our wild quail. I didn't even really think about that. You know, if you're obviously distributing a medicated feed to a wild quail that somebody could unknowingly harvest, bring home, cook, obviously there are definitely some serious considerations there. I mean, that's a, that's a big leap that I wasn't, wasn't even thinking about, but it obviously makes logical sense. All right. Two questions for you, Ron. How does the medicated feed work? And then what is the vision? If you can speak to it, what is the vision for getting this stuff on the landscape into the wild quail population, you know, who would be responsible? What kind of buy-in is there? What does that look like? But first of all, how does it, uh, how does it work? Okay. So I think the easiest uh, parallel would be 
it's like giving your your uh, bird dog heart guard. Okay. So it's it's just like it's just like giving your dog a, a dewormer, pretty much. It's uh, the the feed has been tested. It's been it's been studied in the lab and in the field for for years now, and it's very effective at treating for eyeworms, sequel worms. It can uh, they're they're currently working to demonstrate the ability to treat for coccidiosis, which is another another issue that that quail being a communal bird deal with. And the quail guard medicated feed is also formulated specifically for wild quail. And the, the, the science is, is being done now to make this formula nutritionally valuable for quail to give them just that extra boost and give, give them everything we got as far as it's a supplement, it's um, a, me- a medication, and hopefully, you know, with a, with a little supplemental value, we could help, the, help them make it through nesting season. You know, it just, just give them that little boost they need. So the treatment, how it works for a landowner right now, I can just, I can speak to how our pilot ranches operate and how it's going to operate when it's approved. I don't know, but right now we we've been conducting pilot studies for a few years now. So the protocol that's been used is we're utilizing the quail safe feeder. So it's a easy to use feeder that targets quail. So for FDA, we needed a mechanism that would allow us to feed our target. And we and we don't want to feed non-targets because this is a, a, a medicated feed, FDA. You know, we don't want to be allowing this to go into water sources or feed a bunch of non-targets. Not only is it, you know, it's a, it's a new feed, but we don't want to be feeding wild pigs out here in Texas a, a valuable feed. You know, we, we want to target the quail, keep it out of water, keep it out of the sun. So we're utilizing these feeders and we are feeding the quail guard in the spring and in the fall. So in the spring, right around the um, intermediate host hatch. So when the crickets and grasshoppers start coming out, we get that feed out there. And prior to that, we have Milo or some other supplemental feed in the feeder and then our whole my whole program basically for quail safe and how you know we we get out there and work with the landowners is we utilize a electronic collar that we've developed that is has a very long battery life and and sounds very close to a wild quail to attract quail from as far away as possible to make it as efficient as possible and we have the feed we have feed in there, supplemental feed, and then we deploy the medicated feed in the spring for about a month and in the fall for about a month. And that's all you need. So mm-hmm. you just need a few weeks of medication going to the quail and the quail readily take to the quail guard. And they're, they they intake that feed and they're treated and that protects them through the summer. And then the fall treatment is to basically gear them up for winter to make sure there's no infection, there's no parasites, and that clears them out and allows them to, to make it through the winter. Because the parasites, you know, they, there's all sorts of problems that occur from parasites. But at the end of the day, if you know, Nick, if you're living out there on the ranch and you get a you know, you're kind of sick and run down and then you got a couple inches of snow on the ground. If you're already sick and then it snows, it gets really cold. You know, you, you, you're going to be feeling a lot worse if you're already run down. So that's kind of how we're looking at 
just trying to insulate the quail from other factors that affect quail. So as far as the cost of doing this, I, I'd like to just demonstrate real quick how cost effective this would be as far as an equation. So if you had a thousand acre property and we wanted to medicate it, we would say on a high end, we could put six feeders, six quail safes on that property. So we would have one every 166 acres. And then for each feeder, we would do, we would say two bags per treatment period. So four bags total. So that's 24 bags a year. And we don't anticipate this quail guard costing more than $40 a bag. So it's really incredible that you could, a, a property of a thousand acres, and that allow you to, you know, you can multiply that for whatever size property you have, but under a thousand bucks is what the total would be to, to medicate. And it's really going to be, it's, it's the most cost effective and affordable quail management practice available when we really dig into it. Well, it's definitely unique. And you and I talked about this a little bit. Maybe you can touch on it, you know, somewhat. I mean, this is definitely intervention into population of wild animals, which really, you know, there's not a whole lot of this world that has not been touched or intervened by mankind. So that's kind of, that's kind of part of it, but to be able to actually put these on the landscape, make an impact, especially, you know, with the landscape down there, there is a lot of private land and people can kind of do as they so choose it. It seems to make sense as far as a effectiveness and an efficiency standpoint what are you seeing if this is you know not scientific if this is just observational from you that's okay but what are you seeing on some of those pilot ranches as far as populations and effectiveness of the treatment yeah we i can just kind of speak to the current situation as of this weekend out out at the uh, out at our family ranch um, which is how many acres uh, we're, we are about 2,200 acres. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, comparatively to, to other properties, our ranch and uh, one of our other pilot ranches, uh, in Aspen, Texas have pretty good quail numbers this year. They had huntable quail numbers this, this season and compared to other properties in the rolling plains, that was amazing to have huntable numbers, but to try to put some data to it, not scientifically, just observation. Our pilot ranch in Aspermont, near Aspermont, they were doing call counts, which they have locations throughout the ranch. This is a 6,000 acre property. Locations throughout the ranch where they go you know, every morning to see how many cock roosters are calling that morning, how many individual ones. And he, this weekend, had in some locations over 20 at each stop, which is uh, unbelievable right now when we compare to the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, which is uh, in Roby, Texas. It's, it's run by Dr. Rollins, who's done, he, he is the leading quail expert uh, as far as managing for quail. And they have their he, he, he said they have their lowest numbers they've ever recorded on the research ranch this year, uh, which they're hearing a few calls a morning. Wow. Just a handful. Uh, so it's it's kind of hard to believe. And I know people probably think it's um, madness, but I welcome you know, I welcome people to come down to the 
rolling planes and, and I'll show, I'll show, uh, I'll show off some of the pilot ranches. I'm just, uh, I'm just out trying to spread the word right now of, of how effective this is. It's, it's amazing uh, what can happen when you, when you can insulate against parasites. Not to play devil's advocate, but just to kind of ask some of the questions, you know, what, what is the other side of this? Are there, is there a contingency of folks that are, for example, touting habitat and saying, don't mess with this medicated stuff. You know, it's not worth the cost. I mean, what is the other side of it? Or is this kind of, you know, if this gets through FDA, obviously that's a big hurdle. Do you see this being pretty well received by Texas and potentially other areas? I think it's going to be a process and what it's taking right now and what it's going to take is landowners that have a strong commitment to their wildlife. And so some people say you shouldn't, you shouldn't manipulate wildlife. Well, we're looking at numbers so low, we're, we're starting to talk about localized extinction. Yep. So for me, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to, we are uh, interfering, but yeah, it, it's it feels like our duty. I've seen I've seen the numbers so low, and that's my vision is to to say we got to do everything we can right now, and, and it's getting to the point where it could be you know, it's almost too late for some areas. So as far as that, I am a conservationist at heart, and you know that's that's my life passion, but. This needs all our resources and all our cooperation and people just to work together. We still have so much to learn uh, about this whole process. And it's just really, you know, all I could ask from people is just to have an open mind to it. I would never tell someone that habitat doesn't matter. Habitat is extremely important, as are many other factors. But this is a factor that is now proven that it needs to be addressed. And this is, this is uh, I think, going to become a, a, a major key to quail management throughout Texas, all the way to Florida and South Carolina is, is what I believe. And I'm working right now on my end to set up partnerships. I'm, I'm shipping some quail safes to South Carolina next week. I'm trying to develop partnerships and landowners who are so passionate they're willing to do anything for their quail and just try just just try to do it and and i think that's what it's going to take is creating a network of demonstration to show people the value that can be added by doing this and what the potential realizable quail populations could be if we really uh give it all we got here and 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 it's going to take more demonstration just to to demonstrate the efficacy of this and it's going to end to to really unfold you know what what we're doing and and what the real goals are and uh, and that's that's something everyone can agree on it's just it's just going to need more time to evolve into something we could really put into words and say this is our exact goal but we need to keep an open mind as a, as outdoorsmen you know, our world's constantly changing and things change you know, we don't need dogma and preconceived ideas to get in the way of, of innovating, whether, you know, we're talking about going to space or just trying to save a little bobwhite quail. And so that's that's uh, that's kind of my vision for the, the medicated feed and, and the feeders. Cool. So just to kind of clarify and, and really put this out there, you know, in case we have, you know, perhaps a, a landowner listening, somebody that has interest in, in quail populations. This is, you mentioned earlier, the 
quail guard, the medicated feed is is still undergoing FDA approval. So it's not like that's being used out mm-hmm. on public lands. But if a if a landowner is listening to this and they're interested, they want to do something, could they call you up, get a quail safe and some medicated feed on their property? How does that work right now? I'm currently selling the quail safe as just a supplemental feeding system. So okay. I have a lot of landowners purchasing to feed Milo and to be prepared to deliver medicated feed when it does come out. Okay. And in my thought, the wildlife toxicology lab would welcome any private land interest that uh, would potentially want to invest in the the medicated feeding and, and become a pilot program, but that's all that's all subject to to FDA. So I can't really I can't really speak to that. Okay. Ideally the medicated feed will be out next year. Uh, by the end of the year, early next year, sometime we we don't know, and then we can we can all expand our cooperation with medicated feed, but we don't know when that date will be. Okay, this is kind of a a question that I I meant to ask you earlier. I had it written down here, but I didn't. Since the discovery of the impact of these two parasites, do we know that that these two parasites? What is the range of the two parasites? Are they they're not local to Texas, are they? I mean, is the eye worm affecting quail in Texas as it is in Florida, as it is in South Carolina? Is that the case? Do we know that? We don't know that. Okay. I mean, the studies just haven't been done, and that's kind of what I was speaking to earlier of trying to myself develop this network where we could have biologists and and um, and universities organizations throughout the Southeast collaborating to see what the parasitic infection levels are. And that's something that needs to be addressed, addressed throughout different ecosystems. Okay. Got it. All right. Well, we do want to talk about the Bob White film a little bit. So for folks that have not, uh, haven't seen it and if they're fans of project Upland films, which they likely probably are if they listen to this podcast. I think they will like this film. It's very much kind of in the same universe as a Project Upland film. It's really well done. It's super high quality. And it's a great, succinct piece of content for somebody to watch and become more aware of all the stuff that you and I are talking about. So tell us a little bit about the film, your involvement, what it is, where can people see it? Okay. We set out, I guess, at the end of uh, 2017. I had a vision to basically tell the story. I'm I'm very proud to be a part of all this, the development of the quail safe, the uh, just being able to observe the science going on for the medicated feed, and um, wanted to basically tell the story of how this all started and, and where it's going and what's being done to solve this issue. We have, you know, there, there's people who, who, are, who are negative about parasites, but there's a lot of people that are really interested about the parasites and want to learn more. And so that was kind of the root of what we wanted to do with the Bob White film. And so I, I recruited Live Wild Studios. I'm sorry, I got to give a plug to my guys. The, oh, no problem. Jacob Walker, Jacob Walker and Alan LeBlanc are incredible storytellers uh, they're out of nashville this was their first time really doing a uh, a hunting film which you wouldn't think but they were really able to tell and put together the story of really demonstrating our our passion and the wildlife toxicology lab's passion for trying to create a solution and uh the the film really follows my father and the uniqueness of a parasitologist toxicologist who is also a quail hunter and 
how amazingly suited he was for this. I believe this was this was uh, ordained for him. This <laughs> this moment for him. He you know he he loves quail hunting so much. He loves quail. He doesn't even quail hunt anymore. He just studies them almost. Uh, hopefully, he can get some more time soon to do some more hunting. But just to uh, the, the the film really tells the story of of um, what's been done at Texas Tech, what's been done at our family ranch, and where we believe it's going. And you can check it out on the it's on the Mossy Oak Go app, and then we also have it online at thebobwhite.com, and it's just a 10 minute film telling a story about some some South Carolina transplants in Texas just trying to trying to save some quail and then we made another short film about the science at the wildlife toxicology lab and you can find that at wildlifetoxicologylab.org and that's the uh, lab's website and there's a bunch of resources there from all the articles that they published on the science and you can watch the film and, and learn a lot more about the parasite research. Awesome. Yeah. Like you said, the guys from live wild studios, they definitely killed it. It's a, it's a really good film. And I'm uh, uh, as a project Upland fan, uh, I'm not afraid to admit that it's a, it's a great <laughs> film. So I will encourage people to check it out and we will definitely have links to both of those films in the show notes. So it'll hopefully be easily accessible for them. Really appreciate it, man. I, I mean, we covered a lot here. Again, I, I suspect this will be perhaps a new topic for quite a few listeners. Uh, it was fairly new to me, although I had heard about it a little bit. But I'm glad to have had you on the podcast to learn a little bit more about it, learn what is near and dear to your heart, and really kind of get a look at it through that film, which is, yeah, I was kind of joking earlier, I felt like you really kind of get to know your father in that film. You can absolutely see his passion uh, for quail and for what he's doing. Uh, I saw some English setters in there too. Are those uh, are those family dogs? Is that what you guys have? Yes, we have uh five Llewellyn setters. So always have our hands full. They, <laughs> they all have their own personality and they are, they're, they're part of the family. We love them to death. Awesome. Are you a, are you a quail guy through and through? Do you get around travel, do any other up and hunting? I'm mainly quail hunting. I like to, I, I travel some for fishing cause there's, I love to fly fish, but okay. there's not much fly fishing uh, in, in, in West Texas, but I made my first long excursion for me long with the dogs we we drove them up to south dakota to do some pheasant hunting this past year and we'll be doing that again this year which was a blast and it's it's something special to like to live with your dogs for 10 days you know out of the truck and trailer and it's something everybody needs to do i'm sure many of the listeners uh do that all the time but it's it's really special yeah Absolutely, man. Well, I really do. Again, I appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge, experience with us, hopefully educating myself and and the listeners a bit on this important topic and uh, really conservation issues surrounding bobwhite quail. And I appreciate it. If you've got any last thoughts, feel free to uh, say them now. Well, Nick, I'm really thankful for you uh, getting me on today and, and, and let me just talk about quail a little bit. I could talk about quail all day. So I'm, I'm thankful for, <laughs> for you and then the whole project Upland team and, and everything y'all are trying to achieve with the, with the conservation focused mindset. And, and that's a uh, very important, uh, in today's world. And 
I'd also like to say if anyone uh, has any any more questions, feel free to to uh, quailsafe.com or thebobbite.com. Feel free to email me. You know, I, I'd, I'd love to answer questions and just talk more. I'm learning every day, so I'd love to learn something and uh, just talk more about quail. So uh, I can't thank you enough, Nick. I really enjoyed it. Good deal, man. Again, I do appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. We'll keep in touch, Ron. If you ever need anything, you let me know, all right? All right. Thank you, Nick. All right. Take care. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Project Dublin Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And a reminder that this podcast was brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogtra Collars, Yukonuba Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Find more podcasts, articles, films, and much more at projectupland.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.